I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. A Reckoning in Boston is a new documentary by James Rutenbach. We had the chance to talk to him about his new work and the factors that led him to make a powerful film about racial disparity and poverty and hope. James is a gentle, passionate, generous soul with a story to tell. Come listen. James, welcome to TBA Now. I'm so excited to talk to you for any number of reasons. First, because I don't know if I'm a cinema elitist, but I sure do love movies. And uh, I especially admire documentaries. And uh, that at this stage uh, in your career seems to be your fort in your direction. So welcome. Thank you. I'm I'm excited to be here and to talk to you. Just to point out, almost with every guest, we have had um, members of our congregation. And if people are wondering, hmm, James Rutenbeck, so I don't really know him from the temple. And plus, I don't know if Rutenbeck's really a Jewish name. So just for our listeners to understand that uh, James, in fact, uh, is a nice Christian boy and uh, comes to us through a connection that uh, began when uh, I had the opportunity to see his most recent uh, documentary. Uh, and James, would you give us the, the full correct title? I don't want to mess that up. Yeah, sure. It's called A Reckoning in Boston. Uh, yeah, so I, I saw it. And then uh, our mutual friend, Amy Tonkanaji, who connects the world, um, said that it would be uh, probably a, a great conversation to have um, to get to know you better and to explore the dimensions of your work and your inspirations. So thank you uh, for making yourself available and for sharing with the audience of this podcast, TBA Now. You're very welcome. James, A Reckoning in Boston, tell us something about it. What's the What's the setup? What, what's, what's the subject of your documentary? Sure. Um, a Reckoning in Boston is a, it's actually a feature documentary that started in a classroom in Dorchester in a night course in the humanities uh, with low-income adults who had gone there to study art, philosophy, and history two nights a week for the first time in their lives. But over time, it changed into something bigger as I spent more time with some of the students in the class and became a bigger story about the lives of low-income people of color in Boston, their aspirations, their dreams, and their, the reality of their lived experience. What is a documentary supposed to do? Um, I, I, I think a documentary can do a lot of different things. Uh, I was talking to my son about this this morning. Um, I think there are films that are entertaining. Um, th there's a lot of films, documentary films now that are being made about celebrities. And so there are films that are more investigative, sort of muckracking kinds of, from that tradition of journalism. There are historical documentaries that, that might explore uh, a period in history. Um, and they all do different things for different audiences. And I think we're in a what people call a golden age of the documentary now in the sense that there's a lot of experimentation going on with the, the nonfiction form. And there's so much possibility and different ways to tell stories now. But for me, I think like the connecting thing is uh, the stories. They all tell stories and that's sort of at the center of all documentaries and it seems actually for uh, any kind of human relationship at the core is the story 
and how it's shared and understood. So what what are some of the new things or current things that are happening that speak to this new wave or this golden age? Yeah, there's a lot going on with the documentary form now. People rethinking it, people like trying to experiment with the form and try variations on things that there's so many ways to tell a story now. Um, one of the films that that I found really exciting was this film Time, which was nominated for an Academy Award. And it's about a family that's waiting for a husband and father who's been incarcerated for many years to return. Well, it's about their life while he's in prison, basically. And the way it's shot is, it was shot in such a way that it felt sort of timeless. Um, there wasn't a lot of detail in the backgrounds. There was a lot of uh, sort of like a fusing of these these family films, these home movies, basically, with the actual footage that, that was shot by the filmmaker. So that there was sort of the seamless feeling of this sort of netherworld of people waiting for for this really important figure in their family to be released. And it's a really, really interesting film in that way. I think one of the things that's going on with nonfiction films is documentary filmmakers are appropriating some of the technique and style of fiction films. For example, with the kind of films I make and other many other filmmakers make are character driven. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the film A Reckoning in Boston was made over five years, and it's looking at the stories, the personal stories of these characters who are going through a lot of changes in their lives over a long period of time. And that their character development is a big piece of A Reckoning in Boston. And it requires, you know, that kind of filmmaking requires a lot of patience and time and because these stories need to unfold organically. And mm -hmm. so those kinds of stories have a feeling in some ways, more like a fiction film in some cases. There's just so much going on now that um, is unique and different. I, I appreciate the, you're talking about some significantly um, different nuanced interpretations. And for you as a filmmaker, what you're just describing, it would seem to me, requires an enormous amount of energy on your end to create a relationship of trust so that that story can essentially develop um, unimpeded uh, by the notion that there's a camera following this person around in moments that uh, in almost every documentary, I suppose, or in many now in this new age you're describing, if there's not an uncomfortable moment for the subject, then th th there's something wrong. In other words, there, there's some moment or series of moments of confrontation with very significant emotional uh, confrontations. How hard is it for you as the filmmaker to develop that kind of relationship? Um, I didn't, I don't find it difficult in any way i find it very natural and i guess you know the people that i you know in some ways it's like casting a film early on i i was very much drawn to two of the students in the clemente course which the film was started out being about uh coffee dixon and carl chandler and they were both people that revealed themselves in the classroom we were filming in in a classroom to be really insightful people um, that were that were, and I, as I got to know them, I realized how much was changing in their lives and what their aspirations were. And I liked them both, and they were both people that I felt I would like to get to know over time. Um, and 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 that's a very you know, despite the differences in class and race. I think we all have something in common. I mean, we all as humans have connections, right? And that's that's the starting point. And from there, it's negotiating, you know, with this film in particular, 
there were difficulties in negotiating issues around class and race. And that that's what was what we ended up bringing that into the film as part of the, as part of the narrative. But I knew that both had both Carl and coffee had enormous, enormous promise and that they were aiming high in terms of what they wanted to do in their lives. And I knew that that mm -hmm. would make for an interesting, interesting stories. And you succeeded. Um, James, do you remember the first documentary that you saw that kind of opened your eyes to the possibility that you might want to do more than just be a, uh, a customer, but actually be a, uh, a producer? I do. Uh, I moved to Boston. I moved to Cambridge um, in 1978. And I, signed up for a summer course that was through the University Film Study Center, which was a consortium of colleges in Boston that brought in filmmakers from all over the world for different month-long courses. And I signed up for ethnographic film that was taught by a filmmaker named Jean Rouche from uh, Paris, who is a highly influential figure in the history of nonfiction film. And he made a film I saw a lot of films during the course of that month that really had a deep effect on me and how I think about filmmaking. Um, he made a film called Chronicle of the Summer wow, in 1968 in France that was really about the state of French people at that moment in time. And it was done in a very transparent way where they would ask people on the street, are you happy? Uh, how are you feeling? And some of those people became more uh, fuller characters in that film. And questions about France's engagement in Algeria came up, and it, it became this sort of bigger story about France. And I found that film really, really um, revelatory and exciting. And some of the other films I saw during that seminar were films by the Maisel brothers, like Salesman. These are films that I hadn't seen before. Leacock Pennybaker films like Primary and Happy Mother's Day. And these were films that were really engaged with life in a very deep way, but approaching it in different ways. The American approach was a little more observational. The Rouge film was much more direct. And it really opened me up to possibilities for, for documentary filmmaking. So how did you get from there to uh, where you are now? I know it's it's been a few years from point A to point B, but what were some of the things that led you to, how, how did you get there, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, well, it took, it took me many years. I'm from Iowa, and I finished college in Minnesota in mid-70s. I thought I wanted to work with young children, like as a kindergarten teacher, because I had read a lot of the research about child development and was really interested in what could I do that would contribute to society. And, and, and I worked on a teacher corps project in Appalachia for a couple of years, and, but very quickly realized that I was temperamentally unsuited for that kind of work. But, but I had always loved the arts and had been, that was always my first love. So I decided at that point, I just needed to go for it. And I worked in New York for six months for a small educational film company, but I was making so little money there and it was so expensive that I decided to move to Boston. So I worked at Legal Seafoods in Chestnut Hill for, I started working as a waiter and I started working, doing internships with, with independent filmmakers like Richard Broadman, who made film, who was living in Mission Hill and making films about some of the issues that I are in a reckoning in Boston, like gentrification, urban planning. And he actually taught at the museum school, but, you know, was making films with a collective of people who were actually processing the 16 millimeter film in their apartment to save money. And so that was really inspiring to me early on to see that filmmakers could work independently and they could figure out ways to make it work financially. Of course, Richard also taught at the museum school. But it was sort of, that was for me a sort of grounding in, in, in the realities of filmmaking and how you could make it work. And over the years, I, you know, I continued to work as a waiter and 
but ultimately went to grad school in Cambridge and started doing more of my own film projects. And when I finished it at, I went to, there was a small program at MIT, it was called the MIT Film Video Section. They had this really small but really extraordinary program that I felt lucky enough to get into. And filmmakers came from all over the world. Uh, Richard Leacock, at that time, it was started by Ed Pincus, who's you know a very renowned nonfiction maker. Uh, Richard Leacock then was sort of at the helm when I was there. And every Monday night, they would have a screening with a filmmaker from almost anywhere. There were people coming from all over the world to show their films, talk about them. And that was... And that program was sort of a studio program. So I ended up making a film back in the same county I had lived in in West Virginia in a, a basically abandoned coal, a co- former company town, coal company mm-hmm. town. And after MIT, started working more as an editor and supported my family that way. And increasingly started getting more work um, even though it was freelance and there was a lot of insecurity about that, I was able to sort of keep the work coming in and and, and support my family and still explore other films, uh, other kinds of personal films that interested me. It's really something to hear about this development that the, the course that your life has taken to lead you to this most recent uh, work that you've done. I, I wondered about, you You mentioned that you were from Iowa, end up in New York and Boston. You were in some ways an outsider when you first arrived in these uh, two cities. And it got me to thinking, is a good documentarian someone who arrives as an outsider? Does that make the project more complete? Or am I just being hopelessly romantic? I don't think it necessarily is an advantage. You know, being able to see as an, from an outsider's point of view can often be extremely, bring a lot of insights um, that, that one can bring into a film. And so there is something to that. I do think like, you know, with The Reckoning in Boston was sort of an extreme case where, you know, I I live in Newton. I you know, we're basically sort of middle class, but I think of myself as middle class, but the very fact that I own a home in Newton means I'm not truly, it puts me in the 10% just by the very nature of the fact that we bought a house, you know, 35 years ago, Mm -hmm. we're in the top 10% of people in the country. I know that because there was someone in Brookline who wrote a piece in the Atlantic about this. So we are people who think of ourselves as not wealthy, but we actually are uh, when you look at, step back and look at the statistics nationally. Yeah, yeah. So here I was coming from Newton too. Um, and also, you know, we know that there are significant wealth disparities between black people and white people in the greater Boston area. The median household wealth for white people in greater Boston is $247,000. And for black people is $8. So that just, you know, and so here I was coming from the white side into the, a black community and presuming somehow that I could mediate the stories of these, some of these people from this class. And that was sort of the first mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Um, at, but I think in the end, there were a lot of steps in between in getting to the point where I brought my voice into the film. But I think when I did bring my voice in, it, it was the fact that I was an outsider, allowed the film to come together as a film. I've watched a lot of documentaries during this pandemic, um, more than I would ever have been able to um, in any other given time. Uh, partially because I'm on my couch a lot, but also uh, because um, Netflix and HBO have clearly uh, decided that um, the genre of documentary that you described earlier 
stars, um, murder, uh, sensational trials, that sort of thing, really has attracted people. And uh, one of the things I've noticed in watching all of these documentaries that have been screening over the past year is wondering how does the basic human quality of empathy play into your work? I do think of myself as an empathetic person. And when I started this project, I thought that would be enough. But I realized over time of making it that that empathy was not enough. I think that the documentary is a really extraordinary vehicle to express emotion. It's like an emotion-making machine. And I think that when we're drawn into someone else's story on the screen in an intimate, personal way, it is, it's powerful. But I think that in the case of Reckoning, my good intentions and my empathy were not enough to replace my lack of understanding. And I think that there were people around me who encouraged me to go deeper um, into, into their stories. And it, and it wasn't really until I was forced to reckon with my own role in this, in this film that I was able to really go deeper. One of the things is that I got to know these people, Coffee and Carl and Tolga, really, really well over time. And as I saw things happening to them in the city that they had really no control over, it was harder for me to, to be this empathetic observer. And initially, I wanted to be a moral witness. I wanted them voices to be heard. But, but that meant sort of stepping back and just observing. And, you know, near the end of the film, there were people around me, including Coffee and Carl, who were saying, no, you have to do more than that. And I recognized myself that these people had become friends to me. And these things were happening to them, these threats of eviction by housing agencies and actual evictions that, were, that happened to coffee during the course of the filmmaking. And I couldn't just like step back and be removed from all of it. I had to enter into the film, bring my voice into it, and in some ways provide a kind of, I mean, it's unfortunate that this is the case, a kind of confirmation that this, their lived experience was authentic and true. It's tough to say that, but I think that people around me, including Coffee and Carl, knew that I, need to, I needed to validate their stories. I think Coffee felt that we were filming her over many years, and there was like one failure after another. Like she was trying to start a cooperative for other women in her neighborhood to grow food in Dorchester. And distribute it to her neighbors and and get women together and organized. And she was trying to work with the city. There was so many problems, and it took so long to get through all the bureaucracy with the city. And she was also trying to establish relationships with other farmers and with um, food preparation co-ops and to get storage. And it was just like failure after failure after failure. And I think Coffee was deeply concerned that if this film just was her story of failure, it would appear that she was a, a, a failure. And I think what my voice was able to do was bring in, it wasn't, it wasn't her failing, she was trying as best she could. It was a system failing her. And without, and originally we had talked about, you know, Coffee came on as a producer and wanted to have data on screen about that would provide this larger context because she was worried about how she was going to be perceived by viewers. And so we had to like tussle through that because that was like the last thing I wanted to do as a filmmaker was to, to make that kind of film where there's data on screen and it's totally removed from these stories. And so over time, we just came to this decision to bring my voice into the film and to as a way of supporting and giving a sharper relief and some support to to her story what were the most important things 
that you accomplished in that uh, collaboration with Coffee? It was a couple of things. Um, the film wasn't really working as a film, as a purely observational film. It just wasn't coming together. And Coffee, Carl, and I went up to Maine to the Camden International Film Festival, and we had a pitch session with some funders up there. And we met with Nolan Walker, who is from ITVS, which is, I think, probably the biggest funder of independent documentaries in, the, in this country. What it's, does that stand for? It's Indi Independent Television Service, and mm -hmm. it's funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So a lot of the films that you see, documentaries that you might see on PBS, on Independent Lens or POV, are films that have been funded by ITVS. And Nolan is a vi vice president of content at ITVS. He's African-American. He lived in Boston for 15 years and understands race in the city as well as anyone. And he said to me, at, he had, so we had a pitch session with him and he had looked at some footage from the film and at a proposal and, and basically said to me, James, unless you bring yourself into this film the way Coffee and Carl have, it's going to be like every other film of its kind. And I didn't really understand that then. And on the drive home, Coffee asked me if I felt afraid to become as vulnerable as they had for me, which also made me feel <laughs> pretty rotten. And so I, I started to ride well, home. Yeah, it was. So there were these people, you know, as a white man, I did not want to bring myself into the film and potentially make myself a character and do this mansplaining white thing, right? That's the last thing I wanted to do. On the other hand, there were these people of color around me who had been supporting me, who were urging me to do just that. And so it became a process. We have a friend named Fernando Ona, who's an epidemiologist who teaches at Tufts uh, School of Public Health. He, he's been supporting Coffee and a cooperative uh, since they met when he was a writer on her bus many, many years ago. Because this has been a dream of hers for probably 10 years or so. Mm. So Coffee arranged for us to meet at Fernando's office uh, in Chinatown with Tolga, who's in the film, one of the characters in the film, and Carl and Fernando. And we had three or four sessions where I would go off and edit and I would experiment with bringing my voice in and then I would show them what I had done. And uh, Fernando was especially good at asking me questions like, well, how did you feel when you were at housing court and you saw you know, dozens and dozens of low-income people in this chaotic situation, most who were about to lose their living space with no legal support. Like, how did that make you feel? Or when coffee was evicted, like, how did you feel then? And I, it, it forced me to reflect on myself and, and forced me to come into the film in a fuller way with all of my humanity. And I think that was the thing that really changed the film. But what it also did was it freed me up as an editor to break away from chronology, to be able to move through some sections of the film fairly quickly with just a few words, to bring in that startling data about wealth disparity in, in greater Boston. And it's so, it just freed me up as a filmmaker and as a person. And fortunately, I had this kind of guidance from the people around me throughout the whole process of, you know, bringing my voice into the film. And then I took the film, I took the cut that we had, the place that we had gotten to with the film and sent it to Nolan at ITVS and said, we listened very closely to what you said to us, and I've been working on my voice, and I've had a lot of support with that. What do you think? And from there, ITVS got interested in the film. I continued to work more, more closely with Nolan Walker. And, you know, basically, ITVS bought the film at, at a certain point. It was sort of early in the pandemic. And then it will be airing in their 21-22 season on Independent Lens. 
it really is an odyssey, you know, that 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 you're describing of so many different levels, both just the the creative process and how long it took you to go from inception of idea to actually um, selling the finished um, documentary. Uh, and then uh, that level alone is kind of overwhelming. And then you add the your life and the lives of the people that you were focused on and how much it seems everyone involved uh, was transformed by the process as well. My initial idea for this film was that I would film a year in this tuition-free night class in art, history, philosophy, and literature for low-income people in Dorchester. I would go in, we would film over the course of a year, these night classes, because there's so much going on in those classes, because the students bring in their life experience when they talk about uh, Plato, or when they talk about civil rights. You know, we had people in the class who were bust from Boston to South Boston as black, young black children during busing. And so there was so much going on in those classes that I thought, well, this could be such a rich film. And I had conceived it that way and thought, but we'll also, you know, I want to get to know a few of the students uh, fairly closely and get to know them and get to know what their lives are like outside of the classroom. But we could do this, you know, in a year and it would be mostly focused in the classroom. Mm -hmm. What happened was I, as I got to know them, Coffee and Carl, and spent more time with them, I realized how much bigger the story was. And the fact that, yes, this idea of transformation through study of the humanities is powerful and it's real. You know, it's like what many of us have had the opportunity to experience in college. But the transformation in the end, I think in some ways, my transformation was a more significant one in some ways. And that came through my experience of their lives and getting to know them. Uh, you know, James, uh, recently, uh, I'm a big SNL fan, and uh, recently Daniel Kaluuya was the guest host. And in his opening uh, routine, he said, he's English, and he said, people ask, what's the difference between uh, if American uh, racism or uh, European racism, which one is worse? And he said, well, in his case, uh, European racism was so bad that they actually, people had to leave and uh, they had to bring it to Australia uh, and South Africa uh, and Boston. And of course, you know, the crowd is New Yorker. Uh, they, people laughed. And as I sat there, I was like, oh, man. And I thought to myself, is it so true? Is it really as bad as all that? I wonder, are things that bad here? And are we getting this together at all? It's just ironic because this is a liberal, seemingly progressive, educated population in greater Boston. And yet... We have this disparity that is just uh, this sort of glaring disparity between just in wealth alone between white people and black people. And why is that so persistent? And, you know, that's been the case for many, many years and it's not changing. So one could ask oneself, well, why is that? That's one big question right there. I think for me, in in the making of this film, I was... There's so much that we, as suburban people, white people, are protected from and it, that is hidden from our view, that allows us to think and feel that we are okay and that we are progressive and that things are all right. And for me, it was like when those barriers came down and I was seeing these things in housing court or welfare agencies or just on the street with the people I was working with on this film, it really changed how I saw, saw the city. 
And I, I say in the film that it's a city that I always loved, and but I never truly understood. And I think if you're a Black person in Boston, you understand it. And you understand that it is real. And it's a very particular kind of Northern racism. But it is real. And it's, it's, not, it's not something anybody's making up. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. And also, if you look at something like, you know, f- a busing, busing in 1974, and there were hundreds of black kids bused to Charlestown and, and South Boston, they were met with like throngs of people that were saying, get out. There were like eggs being thrown at these buses. These kids were walking into these schools with police protection because it was so dangerous. And why is it nearly 50 years later that we haven't even talked about it? There's been no truth, no reconciliation around that whole thing. And I think it's because people want to just pretend it ne- it didn't happen. And, and I think that's a sign that, well, we're not really on top of this. Well, I think you're saying that and, and looking, I think particularly back in a reckoning and looking at uh, coffee story, I mean, all, all three of your uh, subjects, but the, the, the impact of the true trauma that is part of racism that I think is such a stunning, significant part of the story that I think is not told enough, which is just the daily degradation of the human spirit um, and the psychological harm it causes. And, you know, it's not even that a person, an empathic white person is unwilling to listen, but it's not a subject that people of color are particularly interested in sharing with white people. I I think because it's such a painful, and it's not like reflecting on a past experience. It's a collection of experiences that continue to reverberate and are underscored so that when a, you know, a a black man is shot um, 12 states away in two different time zones, like why, why, why are black people so upset? Just one guy, you know, and I mean, it's bad, but why does it, why does it cause this kind of response? And it's like, well, it's a traumatic response to a horrible situation that pushes a button in every single person of color and learning about that is hard is hard going and i think avoiding the conversation about the horrible horrible really unforgivable behavior of um people in those towns where the buses were rolling in and these were kids on those i mean it, kids and 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 the response was so cruel and premeditated and that it's a ongoing phenomenon um i certainly understand why not only are there white folks that really don't want to go there because of the enormity really of the of the sin, I would say, of the sin of their racism. But also I think black folk are like, I, I don't know. I don't I like what's the gain uh-huh. to to go there with with yeah. these people. I, I mean, I think it's a really hard, hard, hard issue to crack. But I, you're right. I think I think that's a really important uh point to make and how it affected people across the greater Boston area. Yeah, I mean coffee told me about you know, when she was growing up in Dorchester, there were certain streets that she couldn't cross. And she just knew she could not cross that street because it was too dangerous. And she'd be, the N-word would be used. She would. She was just not welcome there. And there were, you know, stories of her brothers who got off at the wrong bus stop and who were in neighborhoods where they felt totally terrified and vulnerable. And so, yeah, it's like, it's not one experience. It's not just busing. But it's it, it's an accumulated experience uh, that is in its totality is just horrific. Yeah, I was in this position making this film where there were some generous people who had a stake in the film who were willing to take time and educate me. 
but I don't think we should expect that from <laughs> like, that's not something it's not the responsibility of black people to take on that role. Uh, right. I think you're right about that, Rabbi. So what do you think you uh, have been transformed into? Well, coffee always tells me, and I, I agree with this, that it's not helpful to be a guilty, feel guilty about any of this. I'm more acutely aware that I'm part of a system. Like I see myself as complicit in these structures that exist in our society that are invisible, but are very real. I'm more acutely aware of that, I would say. I think I'm also, you know, in terms of my own faith experience, I was a parishioner at a Catholic parish in Chestnut Hill that I had loved. And it was, you know, a more uh, Jesuit parish. I learned so much from from the people there. Yet over time, I started to feel, I, I was getting to know Coffee and Carl, 2014, when Ferguson, Missouri happened, right? And and so, like, every few weeks, there was another black man killed by police somewhere yeah. that we mm-hmm. would read about or see in the news. And I was with Coffee and Carl during those times. It wasn't like I was able to just quickly process it and move on. I was having conversations with them about it that were difficult. And, and so it changed the way I s- saw that. And it changed, in some ways, everything ab- about how I saw things. Like, I, I went to church, and every week, you know, there's prayers of the faithful where, you know, people pray for other people. They pray for things going on in society. And it's something that sort of in the Catholic Church is more coming from the priests, you know, it's not like it's an egalitarian um, right. process. And I was I was waiting to hear the names of some of those black men in church. And week after week, and I'd never heard it. And it's, it led me to sort of start looking at other places of worship and, and um and started thinking differently about, well, why am I in an institution that's part of the problem? And 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 not that I don't mean to overstate that, but I, I feel like, you know, the hour on Sunday morning, I I think it was Martin Luther King who said it's the most segregated hour in America because people are in these churches and they're silos and they're not connected at all to each other in the way that would one would think an institution of God would would be, right? So mm-hmm. I sort of, you know, I started looking at other churches in, in greater Boston, and I'm now a parishioner at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in the South End, which is a really diverse, uh, very vibrant faith community that has a youth program that expands all over the city in the summer. Uh, it's called the St. Stephen's Youth Program. I just feel more connected there and i feel like it's a place where i can sit back and listen and learn but i can also at times contribute in a way that i couldn't at the other church i had been attending so i think it has changed me a lot and and i i i see things differently um when i hear but those are just some examples of of that's a a pretty um clear example of of change i i appreciate that and i appreciate as you're describing it uh the role of faith uh, in your worldview and i wonder if you'd want to say a word about that i mean there were many many years when i was young when i wasn't at all religious and i think that but i always feel like i had sort of a really interest in theology and I was I'm drawn to to that. But what happened was my son Anthony is 31 now. He's a full-grown adult, but when he was first diagnosed with autism, he has classic autism and he's also non-speaking. It was really a devastating experience for me and for our whole family. And you know, the implications of that are so deep and 
my wife, who's a very practical person, Marianne was like very practical about figuring out, well, what, what can we best do to support him and um, have him included? He was an inclusion student. He was probably, I think, the first non-speaking inclusion student in the Newton Public Schools. Mm. And he ended up graduating from Newton North and passed his MCAS and was a full-blown graduate. Not a certificate, but a graduate. Right. And um, that was that came through the support of a lot of people and a very generous school system and an enlightened school system that was there to support our family and Anthony. Um, the other piece, like for me, was I guess just the way I'm wired. Like I, I found it. I think my ego was shattered in some ways when he was first diagnosed. It it meant that you know, well, we don't have a son, we don't have a child that's like other children. And what does that mean? And it took me a long time to process that and to sort of get over this idea of, well, this this child does not exist to serve your ego. And he's also not the first disabled person in the world. <laughs> you right, know, like, right, that right. immediately enlarged my view of the world. And I, I got to know other parents of disabled children. And I realized, okay, something happened, but it's not the end of the world. And there are many, many other disabled people out there who have found ways to lead full lives. And so, and it, but anyway, I was sort of like freaking out. It's like, yeah. you know, like how, God, how can you allow this? You know, how can you allow a child to suffer? And just enraged. And it's ironic because like, I wasn't even really a religious person, yet I was having these conversations with God. That led me to uh, sort of a deeper feeling of faith, you know? And I think it's ex it's changed a lot over the years. And uh, it was pretty intense early on. And I really wanted to be in a religious community in a very deep way. And and now I'm not quite like that anymore. It's changed. And I think that I've become more outward looking in terms of social justice issues and being part of a community that is expressing, is turning itself to the world, you know, to God, but also to, to our neighbors and trying to understand what that means. The inspiration through struggle, uh, as you've described it and what it was like, what it is like in terms of helping to be, helping your son be the best man he can be and being a parent. And parents are always feeling like we, we're not doing the best we could. We just don't know what the hell to do. Um, and then when you have a, a child with significant uh, issues um, in their lives, then that compounds this sense of helplessness and uh, and concern, right? That we're not like, just it, give me an answer. And, and, in, and in the world of parents dealing with children with disabilities, you know, I've always wondered why the hell isn't there some book that every parent can get locally, like in Newton, what are, 50 things you should know, people you should talk to, places you can get to. It seems like every family always ends up having to mm -hmm. create that notebook. And yeah, I, I don't know, it's just not fair, but I digress. Um, did you ever think about doing a film about Anthony? I have thought about it. Um, I've actually worked on several films about non-speaking young people. I worked on a film as an editor for a film called Deej, uh, which was on um, on PBS a few years ago, about a non-speaking young autistic guy from Iowa. And I worked, I'm working on another film now about uh, a 21-year-old man from Concord, New Hampshire, who's named Samuel Habib. And he's his father is a disability activist and a filmmaker. And Dan and I have worked on a couple of different projects together. So I'm definitely interested in it. I think that part of me, you know, it's, it's even, I, I hesitate sometimes to 
even in a forum like this, like to talk about Anthony, because I, I want to respect his privacy. Yeah. And I feel like maybe someday there will be a project that we could work on together, but I, I don't feel comfortable at least now making a film about him, like me making a film about him. I think it would have to be totally collaborative and something he, he would be participating in fully and willingly. And for now he does not want to do that. Right. Well, I have to say that um, were the two of you ever to decide down the road that it was a project you wanted to collaborate on, um, I have no doubt about its intensity and depth because in looking, uh, viewing a reckoning um, a few times now, I just want to reiterate uh, how impactful uh, your film is and the moment that you decided to step into it. Um, I didn't see the rough cut before you decided, but I must say that you're, you're making yourself vulnerable. You adding your voice and using your, uh, undeserved white privilege to help further the lives of the people of whose lives you were a part of. All of it is, uh, moving and, um, I, I hope that many people will see it and that many people will try to find more of your work. So if we wanted to see earlier things that you've created, James, how would we find that? Uh, well, I made a film. There's a film called Class of 27, which is about children in rural America. It was looking, it was a, it's a short film that, that's on the Atlantic. Um, it's streaming at the Atlantic. There are other films. My website, Lost Nation Pictures, has uh, a, sort of a list of films and a filmography there. And if anybody wanted to explore any of those films, I could help them find them. James, this has been such a really a blessed experience uh, for me to speak with you uh, and for you to share your uh, your life and your work with the uh, listeners of PBA Now. Thank you for taking the time. We look forward to hearing uh, about a reckoning in Boston uh, as you enter into that all important for documentarians to eat um, <laughs> award season. And uh, uh, we're, we're hoping for the best. And I think uh, if there's any justice when it comes to pieces of uh, nonfiction film that can change the world, uh, yours wins. Thank you so much. It's, I've really, really loved talking to you, Rabbi. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe. Help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to? We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodah.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.